1959, John Murray, a Scottish systematic theologian at Westminster Theological Seminary, published the first volume of his commentary on the Book of Romans, one that John Piper would later call the most beautiful commentary ever written. In the more than 60 years since it first appeared, Murray's commentary has changed the way scores of pastors and teachers read and teach the Bible, helping to draw many readers and congregations into deeper communion with their Savior. Now, Westminster Seminary Press has reprinted John Murray's commentary on Romans in a beautiful new hardcover edition updated with a new introduction by Sinclair Ferguson. I'm your host, John Curry, professor of pastoral theology at Westminster. In this podcast, we'll revisit the classic commentary with some of the pastors and teachers it has influenced the most. Along the way, we'll explore how Paul's letter to the Romans and John Murray's commentary on that letter help us to understand, teach, and preach Romans in the present day. I hope you'll join me as we explore together the Epistle to the Romans. Today I'm joined by two men who will need little introduction to our listeners, two men who have had great impact on my own ministry and I respect a great deal. Our first guest is Sinclair Ferguson, a pastor, professor, and author who eventually taught here at Westminster Theological Seminary in the same role as John Murray, professor of systematic theology. Sinclair is the author of numerous and notable books, and we're grateful that he has contributed to the introduction to this new edition of Murray's Epistle to the Romans. Our second guest is Alistair Begg. Alistair is senior pastor of Parkside Church in Cleveland, Ohio, where he has ministered since 1983. He's the author of a number of books, and his preaching can be heard worldwide through Truth For Life Ministries radio broadcast. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about this wonderful commentary on Romans. Thank you. Thanks for having us, John. Well, let me get us started in our conversation. First of all, there's no surprises that both of you are Scots, and though I lost the accent of my preteens when we, we moved, I was born in Glasgow. So here's my first question to both of you. If John Murray followed football, what team do you think Murray would support? <laughs> well, I don't think he left any record of his uh, supporter inclinations. So it's just possible that he supported Ross County since he was born in that part of the world or even Inverness Cali Thistle. But um <laughs> I think any form of reasonable logic would lead us to deduce that he was a supporter of Glasgow Rangers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I concur with Sinclair on that. It's a, a perfect analysis of things. Yeah, there you are. Yeah, it's, uh, it'd be hard to imagine him going any other direction, wouldn't it? Well, Sinclair, um, in your introduction to the book, uh, you mentioned how Murray was what you called a lado perz. In other words, he had a really well-rounded education. Before Westminster, before the commentary, as a young man, he, he really came a great distance from Badby, Scotland, to study theology at Princeton Seminary. What would draw a Scotsman to travel from Badby for a theological education in the States at that time? Well, Murray was brought up in the Free Presbyterian Church in Scotland, um, which certainly at that time and probably still regarded itself as the really a true descendant of the Church of Scotland. Um, he 
he actually had some difficulties in the church, um, actually over the over the Sabbath question, and the I think the disciplining of uh, someone he knew. So he had studied in the university in Glasgow after he had been in the war, where he the the First World War, where he he lost an eye, um, and. Then, after graduating from university, he, I think actually he, he thought about uh, doing more mathematics, as many a good Scottish theologian has done. Mm. Um, and, but then he, he had a sense of call to the ministry. And in, in those days, and I think still, the Free Presbyterian Church did not have a theological seminary. They, they used what they would have regarded as the old method of training men for the ministry which was that the the students would decamp into the town of one particular minister. And in Professor Murray's case, it would have been a man by the name of Donald Beaton, um, who was a, a scholarly individual. Uh, I don't think he published much. He actually published uh, once or twice on the Marrow controversy in the Church of Scotland. And I think after Professor Murray had been there for some time, Donald Beaton recognised that he he was a person of unusual ability mm. and also, I think, had real hopes that he would eventually become the theological tutor in the denomination. And so Beaton, I think, must have made inquiries um, about Professor Murray or John Murray as he then was, or Johnny Murray as I suppose people knew him, uh, going to study at Princeton, which was a very, very rare thing for someone from Scotland to do. And that is really the, re the single reason why he, mm -hmm. he went to study at Princeton um, in, the, in the 1920s. So it was, it was kind of an unusual step for somebody and that capacity to take it. Yeah, yeah. capacity. Yeah. Alistair, let me ask you, um, how were you exposed to John Murray's work? H had you heard of Murray when you were in Scotland, or was this something, did he come on your sites when you came to the States? Uh, how did you get exposed to it? Well, I'm not actually sure when I got the commentary on Romans, whether I got it in a collection or not. And I'm not sure, actually, about the timing of things, because um, I think he came from uh, Bonner Bridge in Scotland. Is that right, Sinclair? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And my, my grandfather came from the Highlands of Scotland, from Wick, from uh, Caithness. And so as a boy, on our laborious journeys in a tiny car uh, up into the Highlands, we often stopped in Bonner Bridge. And I'm not sure on the timing of this or whether I've reread it into the story or not, but I think that where we stopped, my father was aware of this man, John Murray, who by that time was, was in America and was probably at Westminster Seminary. Mm -hmm. um, so then when I began to when I began to read him, and I read some biographical piece, I can't remember what it was, where he described uh, leaving to go to the war 
and the way his father walked him out, or I just have the vaguest recollection of it, but it was a very moving scene. And uh, I think it was couched in the fact that they were aware of the fact that uh, uh, they may never see one another again in this context. And I remember being really stirred by that. And then, of course, uh, when uh, I was on my own in um, Hamilton, and I made, I made an attempt at Romans, which I should probably never have done. Um, that was when I began to read him on Romans and when I became um, really helped by it. Although I would say this, that when I began to read him at first, I found that the way in which he expressed himself was different from others that I had read, his syntax or the, yeah. his sentence construction or whatever it was. Yeah. And, at, and at first it put me off. And, but when I got into the rhythm of it, then, then um, you know, I, I, I really, really benefited from it. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, around here at Westminster, I think sometimes we call that Murray Ease. You know, learning how to read Murray Ease or speak Murray yeah. Ease, just the way he put things together. He was so particular. Yeah, uh, Sinclair. Um, how was Murray regarded uh, in in Scotland? Is he uh, is he well known there? Uh, and then we know he did have some interaction with Martin Lloyd Jones. What's his profile like in in the UK? Maybe I can go back to what Alistair said, uh, yeah. John, because this is really interesting because uh, John Murray, when he went to study with Donald Beaton, would have gone to Wick. Mm. So maybe we can develop an entire mythology here of Alistair's <laughs> grandfather <Yeah. laughs> speaking to Johnny Murray in, uh, in some part of Wick mm. and uh, the... The, the Murray theology, the Murray ease uh, going down into the DNA. Yeah. So, um, that's a wonderful story for somebody to research. Yeah. But the real background to Alistair's fruitfulness lies in yeah. side <laughs> street and wicks on there. So I don't know what Alistair would say about this. I would say that Professor Murray has been relatively little known in Scotland. Mm -hmm. uh, I, To be honest, I doubt that he has read all that much. Mm. Um, now, part of that uh, is related to the fact that most of his substantial ministry was outside of the country. Um, when he came back, as he did, I think, every couple of years, I think he basically just worked on the craft and, and maybe studied. But he, he, he was not a prominent figure. Mm. I, had, I had never heard of him until the end of my first year at university. I had no idea who he was until the man who was the president of our Christian Union announced in a meeting I was at that Professor Murray was retiring from Westminster Seminary and we'd be able to have him speak at the Christian Union. And I have this vivid memory, <laughs> which has become quite an emotional memory, obviously, of thinking, who on earth is Professor John Murray and where in all the world is Westminster Seminary? <laughs> um, so... Uh, and the fact of the matter is, I think, in the United Kingdom, um, his his writings have not sold in vast numbers. Um, he has been something of a hidden gem. Um, and and obviously, in some parts of his writings, he he is 
he's a he is a bit of an acquired taste. Yeah. I think because of the grandeur of his language, which is something that most authors today, I think, try to avoid. I think yeah. most Christian authors tend to try to avoid language of high rhetoric, yeah. either because we don't have it or because we don't think people will read it. Yeah. Um, but I think once people once people get into the rhythm, as Alistair was saying, it, it's... Um, it's gold dust, really. It is. Yeah. Question was about Dr. Lloyd-Jones. Um, they must have met, I think, probably on a relatively small number of occasions. Uh, Dr. Lloyd-Jones had a mammoth profile in the United Kingdom among evangelical people, but Professor right. Murray not. Professor Murray was, I think, probably a divine right Presbyterian, and Dr. Lloyd-Jones was very definitely not... <laughs> A divine right Presbyterian. Um, I think Professor Murray actually had quite a high view of church government, and Dr. Lloyd-Jones, I think, was relatively indifferent to the form of government because he thought fixing the form of government is not the real need of the times. Mm -hmm. um, they were very different personalities. Um, I think if you'd asked Dr. Lloyd-Jones a question, he would have come back with an answer. If you ask Professor Murray a question, he might come back with an answer two or three days later. Yeah. Um, so very differently wired, which is, you know, when, when you think of people like myself who, who, have, who have been helped by both, it's a great illustration of diversity of gifts and yeah. diversity of personalities. And, and, you know, Alistair and I would be very grateful for both of these men. Yeah. Sinclair was... Was John Murray still at Westminster when Lloyd-Jones did the lectures on preaching and preachers? Now, let's see. Now you're mm. testing me. Yeah. Um, preaching and preachers. Well, preaching and preachers is 69, right? So I think he's gone. So he, he retired in 66, I think. Okay. So he, he wasn't he there. He would have been gone, which yeah. in a way is a pity. Um <laughs> from yeah. the point of view of it would be nice to think that they spent more time together. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. Let me ask you about the book of Romans. Alistair, if I could uh, turn to you for a sec, for a second, as we've done some of these podcasts, we've been asking the guests about preaching through Romans. You said when you were alone in Hamilton, you took a stab at it. Did you go all the way through it? Or like most of us who've done this, we preached from Romans, but not through Romans. How, how have you handled it? Well, it was a long time ago, and I concur with, you know, Spurgeon, who told his students, keep your old sermons to weep over them. Yeah. And um, <laughs> there's, there's no possibility, I don't think, of uh, ever unearthing any of that stuff with, uh, with, uh, yeah, with any sense of usefulness. But, um, you know, when you read, when you read somebody like, him and the depth of his insight, and you are, uh, you know, in the in the earliest stages of grappling with uh, the Bible, and certainly grappling with the 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 huge sweep of Romans. Um, I think I I think I was um, overawed by what he did, mm. and couldn't possibly use the material as it were as it existed um i couldn't i couldn't break it down sufficiently to make it uh, 
make it my own. And so I sort of read it as a, as a wonderful piece. I, I, and, and I had observed others. I won't mention a man by name, but you're talking about the way in which you preach Romans. Yes, I was foolish enough to, to, to start off and, and keep going. Uh, somebody that I admire greatly went one through eight and then went on his holidays and then came back and started in chapter 12. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> when I got myself stuck in the middle of chapter 9, 10, and 11, I realized the great wisdom on the part of that older soul. Um, somebody has said to me most recently, well, surely uh, you might now be able to try Romans after all this time, and after all, you'll die soon, so you might as well give it a go. Um, I, just, I just found it, uh, I still find it absolutely uh, wonderfully helpful. And when I read the little book that Banner put out uh, recently uh, of uh, 10 of his un, un, uh, previously uh, sermons that had never, had never made it in print, I just, I, I agree with Sinclair that it was, it was pure gold. I wanted to read them very slowly. I wanted to actually read them out loud mm. because the sense of pastoral um, compassionate insight that is interlaced with the, his theological grasp of things is, is in my experience, is actually hard to equal. Yeah. yeah. And I wish that he had done much more than he did uh, just on Romans. I'd love, I'd love to have, I'd love to have him on Galatians. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things you talk about the pastoral insights, Sinclair, one of the things I've noticed as I've been working through the commentary is, you know, as you're preaching through it or you're reading through the commentary, preaching the book or reading the commentary, you know, you don't often get guys who get all the way to 12 or in the commentary, you don't get to 12 and 13. But if you, if you read through to 12 and 13, Murray's pastoral insights and the, and the latter part of that commentary and how he works out the Christian ethic uh, in practice uh, is, is actually quite remarkable. And I'm not sure it's appreciated just given the length of what you have to do. So uh, Sinclair, why do you think, why do you think Roman seems like such an Everest for preachers? I think John Piper called it the Everest when he walked up to it and then backed up. Why do you think it's such a challenge for preachers to, I mean, you've gone through it, preach through it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just a mountain peak, John, I think. Um, I think partly it's daunting because it's had such an impact on our lives. Right. And we're, I think, I think, you know, we get to some level of maturity where we realize that it's often the things that have most, most impact on us that become the most difficult to preach. Mm. Um, I, I've never forgotten one occasion I heard Professor Murray begin an address by saying, I find it very difficult to speak on a subject to which I've given a great deal of thought. Wow. And, you know, I, I mean, I was naive at the time. I, I might even still have been a teenager. And I thought, he's getting old and he's he's actually messed up the first sentence. Um, that cannot be right. Yeah. And then I think it may, have been, it, it may have taken me about 25 years to realize there was something I was asked to speak on that I, I had actually given a lot of thought to, and I was finding it really difficult to prepare. And yeah. I remembered this voice from the past 
Um, and I, I think I, you know, I realize that actually is often true. Um, that when something has been so big in your own life, and when you've preached on parts of it that you have seen make impacts. So that's one element of it. The other mm. element of it mm. is the sheer theology of Romans is so daunting. Um, I think one of the things that distinguishes Professor Murray's commentary from many other commentaries is it isn't a literary essay. He, he doesn't treat Romans, as it were, as simply a, a text to discuss. Mm. He, what he treats is the realities to which the text of Romans points. And in, I think I think his ability to express that is part of his grandeur, that mm. his his rhetoric matches the grandeur of what Paul is talking about. And I think most of us feel the the fear that we might diminish Romans by the way we preach it. Yeah. yeah and then indeed. there are, you know, there are difficult passages in Romans. And I think also there are some passages in Romans that seem alien to many Christians because they've not been, there are topics in Romans not much preached on. Um, so I think there are all kinds of challenges, yeah. really. Yeah. And I, I don't imagine anyone who is, um, any, anyone who has had a lot of experience in ministry begins a series on Romans without fear and trepidation. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I could ask both of you, when you have preached in Romans, was there a hardest text to preach? Was there a preach that was the most delightful to preach? What has your, can you identify one text that you say, this was, this was real work, real hard, at, or, but this was a delight. Is there one that comes to mind? Well, I mean, and I'm going way back now. I, I, and even thinking about Lloyd-Jones in relationship to uh, John Murray, uh, you've got the whole issue there of uh, the transition between chapter 6 into chapter 7, and Lloyd-Jones's perspective on that, which would not have been in concurrence with um, Murray's treat treatment of that seventh chapter, at least if I understand both correctly. And so that was a challenge for me because I was influenced by Lloyd-Jones, and I regarded him highly. And yet, as I read Murray, Murray made more sense to me than the regard that I had for Lloyd-Jones. And so, uh, whether out of conviction or out of cowardice, I retreated to the, the safe embrace of Murray mm. rather than, than uh, uh, heralding uh, Lloyd-Jones's uh, thing on it. Um, at 9, 10, and 11, of course, uh, not hard to understand as much as hard to preach in a context that regards uh, many of those foundational premises as alien to life and to uh, certainly to understanding, I, I I think I still find it just a just a daunting uh, prospect. Um, I, Romans uh, Romans twelve, you kind of get to Romans twelve with a great sense of relief and and preaching there. And on through there, uh, maybe uh, yeah, I don't. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Sinclair, anything that stuck out for you as this was a text I just delighted in, or one that was particularly difficult? Well, the difficulties are many. I think. Um, I mean, in some ways, 
the the text in Romans I found most difficult to preach was the closing verses. Hmm. In the one occasion I ever took a congregation through Romans, because you know, I guess it would be the nearest thing I would ever experience to being on top of Everest and saying to whoever my Sherpa was, well, it's time to go down. Um, and I think actually, because it had been such a journey for us as a congregation, I think there were there were people in the congregation suggesting I maybe could preach on the names in Romans 16, one by one, <laughs> um, because we really felt we'd been on a, a mountain yeah. climb. Um, the 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 particular passages I think I've found more difficult to preach on because of how am I going to get this over to people who don't think in these categories? I've probably been five, twelve to twenty-one on Adam and Christ, mm-hmm. which I personally think is really a very foundational um, chapter in the whole of Romans. So that's one. Then the some of the concepts in, in Romans 6 are very alien to people um, because the very idea of being in Christ, uh, you know, has almost been forgotten, I think, in, in the evangelical world. Then 9 to 11, there are, you know, you've got to make decisions where you know that you're going to part ways with friends. Also in Romans 7, that's true. Right. Um, so, um, you know, I think those have been the challenges. As to delight, I suppose the chapter, uh, the section I'm most probably delighted in is 5, 1 to 11. Hmm. Um, probably delighted in that more than in Romans 8, which has its delights. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. Oh, excuse me. You mentioned Romans 6. Um does Murray make a particular contribution in the interpretation of Romans six? And, you know, would you maybe just uh, highlight that sketch that for our, our, our listeners as they can contemplate picking up this contrib- this commentary, what's Murray's contribution with Romans six? Want me to answer? Yeah. Yeah. Please, please. Yeah. Well, I think my answer would be um, that, I actually think there were relatively few interpreters up to Professor Murray's time who kind of got Romans 6 on the nail. Mm. Um, And I think that was because he married, he was able to marry together very strong systematic theology with a very strong sense of redemptive historical theology. Um, and grasped in that sense the significance of what Paul had been saying in 5, 12 to 21 about being in Adam or being in Christ. So I think that was one of his contributions. Then the second thing would be what he came to call um, definitive sanctification. Um, And he, he, he he has a piece on that in his collected writings, I think maybe in volume two, um, where he emphasizes that the, the, the language of sanctification in the New Testament uh, is dominantly used in the past tense, that in our regeneration, in our conversion, coming to faith and repentance, 
there is a decisive, what he called a, a, a radical breach with the dominion of sin. Right. And so I think his big contribution there is the emphasis that when one becomes a Christian, when one is united to Christ, one shares in Christ's death to the reign of sin. That doesn't mean that we are delivered from the presence of sin, either in the world or in our own hearts. But the key thing is that we have been set free from the dominion of sin, and it's because we've been set free from the dominion of sin and placed under the reign of Christ that we're able to um, battle against sin. And he saw that this was the structure of Romans 6. You know, you've died to sin, you've been raised to newness of life, therefore don't let sin reign over you. Um, you've been brought into this new world of existence. And that, to me as a young Christian, when I, you know, when I started reading Murray, that was a tremendous help to me to understand my identity as a Christian, um, which um, was a relatively small thing in those days, but your identity today is an absolutely massive consideration. And so, you know, albeit it may be difficult for the preacher to communicate this reality that is not natural to our way of thinking, it's hugely beneficial, especially to younger people who are Christians, um, to know that they've been given this new identity in Christ. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that, if I remember rightly, uh, um, Alistair will maybe remember this more accurately, I think Lloyd-Jones says in his preface to his exposition of Romans 6 that someone once came to him and asked him when he was going to begin a series on Romans, and his answer was, when I can understand chapter 6, mm -hmm. which does say something about the challenge of understanding it and communicating it. Uh, and also, the great Thomas Chalmers, 19th century Scottish uh, theologian, who was, I think was probably the greatest man in the United Kingdom in, in the 19th century, uh, said he thought this was the most interesting chapter in the Bible. So huge, hugely important. And I think Professor Murray really, well, I, I should add something. He had this strong sense of systematic theology. He had a very strong sense of biblical theology, but he also had a very strong sense of pastoral theology. Right. And I think that's why he, he more than anyone else when I was young was a help to me to think through what Romans 6 was all about and how to try and communicate it to people in, in the present time. Yeah, yeah. Alistair, yeah. Pick, yeah, picking up on that, communicating it, you had talked a little bit about in your early days, you know, ascending the peaks of Romans and trying to think through Murray and how you communicate it. As you're talking to younger pastors, uh, guys who are going to the pulpit and trying to preach Romans, what kind of counsel do you have for them in terms of how do you bring these great truths to the pew and to the, to the heart of the people? Uh, how do you communicate uh, Things like Romans six and the last half of Romans five. What are some, what are some practices that you would recommend? Well, you know, I think that when uh, Sinclair makes these observations about the grasp of uh, systematic theology and the the framework of things, um, that that is something that I have lacked in 
any kind of formal training that I've had. And therefore, I've had to learn on the job. And although it sounds like uh, almost silly to say, well, one of the things that I would say to them is, uh, read John Murray yeah. and and read him slowly and see if you can, if you can, uh, if this thing can get in, inside of you in a way that, as Singler has just said, instead of just trying to understand what this what this verse means in its immediate uh, impact, but what what the underlying framework of things is that allows you to. Uh, tackle the the way the in which the text unfolds in light of the the unseen elements or, or the bigger elements i suppose like in a building that the, the substructure of things is vitally important to what you're putting on top of it yeah, yeah and and without embarrassing Sinclair i mean quite honestly one of the things i would say is that i would say to people well if you can if you can find some of Sinclair's work on this then you've really got a far more contemporary um, illustration of this grasp of uh, systematics that is combines with uh, pastoral application and and redemptive history. And uh, the honest answer is that uh, whether it's whether it's trying to preach or trying to learn to swing a golf club, we're looking for models of of, of people that we can learn from. And uh, so there aren't, there aren't a tremendous amount of those characters out there as, as far as I can see. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm constant, I'm constantly on the lookout. I, I think as well, the other thing I would say, just thinking about Romans six and having just um, uh, spoken on uh, the, the great commission in Newcastle last week. And as I, as I was preparing for that, I, I realized how important and how helpful to me has been uh, John Murray's explication of the abiding place of the law mm-hmm. in, in the life of the Christian. Yeah. And how, again, for example, in Romans 6, you know, in answering that question, well, what, what are we going to say in response to this? You know, we shall, shall grace uh, be such that we can just do what we please. And that is another note that he sounds very clearly and very pastorally and vitally so in an increasingly in an increasing disregard for that element and i think these things are entirely related the nature of our union with christ uh, dying to sin and then understanding w- what it means for us that that sin no longer reigns but it remains and that we are engaged, as the confession says, in a continual and irreconcilable war. But we are engaged in that war from the perspective of what what he has, uh, what Paul is saying there about who we now are in Christ. Yeah. And yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's it. just you know, hearing both of you, it, it, the the combination, and I think you see this in, in, in Murray's methodology, the combination of the, the the systematics and the attention to exegesis within a context of biblical theology. And, you know, I, I agree, you can get uh, models like Sinclair and yourself, Alistair, watch people do that in the pulpit. It's uh, uh, that that's a, a great boon to up and coming preachers. I would say one thing, though, I mean, people ask me, do you play golf? I say, well, I play at golf. <laughs> and um, the, the preposition is important. And, and again, without being, uh, I mean, I regard Sinclair as uh, 
uh, many things, but you know what Sinclair does, I aspire to do, yeah. and um, you know so we're we're grateful for. I'm I'm grateful for the privilege of uh, access to him. So yeah. since we're talking about each other here, Ron, <laughs> uh, um, you know, just listening to what Alistair says, I think is a terrific example, um, and maybe one that's very much needed. Um, that points to the the amount of sheer hard work that Alistair does in preparation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he might sound as though it all just flows out of him. Um, but I know by observation the amount of work that he's done. Because, um, you know, at the end of the day, one way or another, we all come out of our theological education pretty deficient. Mm-hmm. I mean, we may be so deficient that we don't know that we are deficient, uh, <laughs> but we're really, we're really only beginning. Um, and I think one of the things that's impressed me about Alistair's ministry is the sheer amount of hard work and study and reading that lies behind it. Um, and I don't know, I don't know what you both think, but one of the things I've kind of begun to pick up is just echoes in what I hear of young of younger ministers that they do a lot of their preparation just by going to some website that has millions of sermons and listening to other people's sermons. And I think one of the hallmarks of Alistair's ministry, which is justifiable to say in a program on Professor Murray, because Alistair's grandfather came from the same place (laughs) that (laughs) Professor Murray once studied, is that that is not the way to prepare Mm -hmm. your own messages. Right. the, the value of a commentary like Professor Murray is if you stand up and just quote Professor Murray, especially in an American accent, people will think you're off your rocker. Right. Um, they'll not comprehend, and plus they'll not comprehend, plus you'll be before the presbytery for plagiar- plagiarism. Mm-hmm. Um, but the necessity of doing the hard work is so is so important, I think, to stress because I think in our day of social media, uh, I mean, there is such a temptation to try to leap from where you are to where Alistair is, maybe by reading the last book that Alistair quoted, and not knowing the books that Alistair read. You know, twenty, thirty, forty. <laughs> Let me say, all the stop, stop. <laughs> um, and, and I think that's such an important thing that, you know, that kind of fruitful, that long-lived fruitfulness comes from a tremendous amount of hard study. Yeah, yeah. Well said. Because it's, it's not easy to take the riches of the gospel and, and present them as the kind of theological chef that Alistair is. Um, and to me, I think he's just a great illustration of this This fruitfulness comes from a lot of very hard work over the long haul. Yeah. Well, so well, well, well said. And, and may God give us many more younger preachers who, who do that kind of hard spade work. I think that's right. Maybe we could wind up this way. If I could toss a question to, to uh, both of you. As you're thinking about, we're looking at this commentary on Romans 
but more importantly at Romans. And you've both alluded uh, throughout the, the interview um, to the cultural relevance that of Romans 6 and Romans 5, Romans 8, the identity issues. As you're, as you're working through Romans and thinking about Romans, what would you say is the pastoral value of Romans today in our cultural moment? How, how would you put that? Well, maybe, maybe I can have a stab, John. Um, I, there is a story that goes back, I don't know, maybe 15 years in the British universities that a group of Christian students uh, put into the form of a little leaflet, Romans 1, 18 to 320, and just S handed it out. Sussex. And they were called up before the university authorities for this inflammatory literature. Hmm. And they were told, this is almost laughable, they were told that they had to bring the author of the piece with them, <laughs> um, which, you know, says a good deal about the ignorance of some university authorities, but it also underlines the relevance of that section in Romans. And, you know, going back to is, you know, is there a passage you find difficult to preach on? I found preaching a series of sermons on one eighteen to to uh, the to one thirty two difficult, not because it was difficult to understand, but because it was Im impossible to misunderstand mm -hmm. and to do that with integrity, but also with an appropriate compassion. Um, I mean, it's just a devastating expose of the human condition and our our present time. And the way in which, you know, I think it's just the assumption of the world that God's judgments always come in thunder and lightning, when one of the things Paul is certainly saying is that may be the end, the end game, but in the present day, God's judgments come by him saying, if, if that's what you're devoted to, then that's what you will have. Um, which is the very antithesis of the way the world thinks about the present reality, and also something that Christians, I think, often don't grasp. Um, and then, you know, when you motor on to, and I've had a lot of talk, maybe among younger ministers, about the fact that guilt is gone and shame is in, um, whereas I think actually we're living in a very predominantly guilt culture, now, you know, I, I think I am supposed to feel guilty, A, because of who I am, and B, because of what I believe. And then the other material in 6 and 7 and 8, and, you know, the hopefulness of 9 to 11, and the practical, the I mean, just the onslaught of imperatives that begins to appear in 12, 1 following. And the that, yeah, you know, Murray has a grandeur in his writing, but tremendous clarity in his thinking. So, I mean, it is kind of unending, even when you get to the end and all these names that tell you so much about the pastoral love that he had for people. Um, I'm not leaving anything in Romans for Alistair to say. That's... <laughs> <laughs> I just say amen to that. Yeah, I, yeah. I um, you know, again, 
inserting Lloyd-Jones again and again. I mean, if I understand correctly, he starts his work on Romans uh, with uh, 321, doesn't he? But now, but now, I'm not sure I ever heard him do chapter one, or I haven't read, uh, I, I didn't check in, in prospect of this. But I was about to say uh, just what, what Sinker has said about the, the second half of Romans chapter one in terms of the impact. And if, uh, if I remember correctly, I think it was the University of Sussex where that took place. Oh, it was really, a, really. one of their freshers weeks and they, that's what they put out as their, their piece of literature. It, and if you think back that that is probably f uh, f 45 years ago, you can't imagine what would happen if you were to try and distribute it today in, in one of the contemporary uh, universities. And I would say as well that in, in thinking of how to communicate that, uh, the, in, the, in the back of my mind, I, I always try to remind myself that when, when Paul had his opportunity at, at Mars Hill, this is, is the same man who wrote the second half of Romans chapter one. He, he knows exactly what the, the congregation that he has. And, and it's, and he, but he doesn't, he doesn't start um, with uh, verse 18 of Romans. You know, he starts actually with the doctrine of creation. He starts where they are. And just in terms of, how do, we how do we learn how to contextualize the challenge of these verses in an environment that is so uh, just vehemently opposed to these things? Without, how do we do it without giving up any of the straightforward, direct implications of it? But how do we do it with a lightness of touch? How do you have a light, how do you have a touch on the ball that doesn't keep in basketball terms, it doesn't keep whacking off the backboard all the time. Um, it, that that re that really is for me the the challenge, and it's an up to date challenge because one of my colleagues said to me before I went to the UK last week, he said, "You know, I think there may be a place for you tackling um, over a period of five Sundays, you know, four or five of the current pressing issues of the day, which." In many ways, if you want to do that, you should probably just expound uh, Romans 1, 18 to the end because yeah. there's, you, you, you'll touch on them all uh, rather than t t tackling them as a, to as a topical study. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. Fascinating, yeah. Well, gentlemen, uh, thanks so much. This has been a great conversation. I want to thank you both for joining us in this discussion about John Murray and his timeless commentary on Romans. For listeners who are interested to learn more, you can order, order copies of the new edition of the Epistle to the Romans on sale now at WTS Books, Reformation Heritage, Christian Book, and Amazon. Thanks so much.